Good morning, church family. And thank you, Eliana, for that wonderful testimony and song. Aren't you thankful for the faithful love of Christ? Um, this morning, I, I'm sharing God's word with you from my office. I'm just a, in the next room over, and I certainly miss being with you there in the auditorium. Let me just tell you why I'm doing this and get that out of the way. Uh, this past week at the doctor's office, uh, someone had COVID, and so my doctor called and said, you need to quarantine, and uh, so I'm following his instructions there. And so I still want to share God's word with you, but we'll do it from the office this morning. Would you turn your Bibles with me, please, to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3, and I want to read to you the text that we've been working through. Verses 14 through 16. 1 Timothy 3, verse 14 says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar of and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your faithful love, for your goodness to us. We are thankful for your word. We're thankful that it is the all-sufficient, inspired, authoritative word of God. And even though this morning we share your word with one another through live stream, your word is still living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Father, this morning I ask that you would indeed discern us with your word. Show us who we are in our heart and who you've called us to be in your word. And Father, lift our eyes to the person and work of Jesus Christ, who is the who is our message and the center of everything that we do and the reason for our existence as Christians and as the church. We pray that you would rearrange our affections and our motives and, and our thoughts, that we would conform to your word and be the church that you've called us to be. Only by your grace and through the power of the ascended, risen Christ can this happen and in his name do we ask these things. Amen. As I introduce our return to this text this morning, let me ask you a few questions. What motivates your behavior, your words, your actions? Uh, as a member of Christ's church, we know that this section of Scripture that we're, we're looking at in these last couple of weeks focuses on the behavior of the New Testament church. As Paul says in verse 15, so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. That's the center of the letter of 1 Timothy. 
and certainly the main idea of these three verses. What motivates our behavior? What motivates your behavior, the words you speak, the actions that you you show when you are gathered together, when we're gathered together as Christ's body? What motivates our behavior when we scatter into the community to make disciples, to do our work, to, to go about our lives in the community that God has placed us? Well, there are so many things that motivate a person's behavior. Sometimes a person is motivated by what feels good. That's their compass. This is what feels good to me, so that's what I'm going to do in any given situation. Another person might be motivated by the fear of discipline. My life is governed by the fear of getting in trouble. Financial success. That might drive someone. The the decisions that they make as they get up in the morning and go throughout their day may be motivated by financial success. Or, Or how about a desire for admiration? Many people live moment to moment in their lives desiring to be admired by other people. And so that determines what words they use and and, and how they behave, what words they speak, what what clothes they may put on, and and how they they conduct themselves in in the world. Other people maybe desire to control other people. Uh, Competition, they want to always be the best in what they do. Personal safety might be a motive for life. Happiness and comfort might be a motive for, for living there, there are so many strong desires in the human heart that motivate behavior. Have you ever taken the time to slow down in your life and just think, why do I do what I do? What is motivating me? And in this letter of 1 Timothy, Paul has clearly written to us, and you've heard this from me many times as we've been going through this, he's written to us clearly that our behavior matters. Because of whose name we bear, because of who we are, we've been called out of the world and we are now the church of Jesus Christ. Our behavior matters. The behavior of the people of the local church matters. Every single day, it matters very much to Jesus Christ and to the progress of his redemption, redemptive mission in the world. That's how he's designed it to be. But Paul gives us very different motivations for behavior in this text than what come naturally to us. We're not born into this world with the right motives. We're we're sinful all the way down to our core. Our hearts are sinful. Our very nature is sinful. And so part of the, the progress of Christianity is sanctification, right? Sanctification, becoming more like Jesus. And that means changing the motivations and behaviors of our lives, the motivations of our heart. And so Paul says strongly to us here, the main idea of this text, we must know how to behave as God's church. And for our spiritual change, the Holy Spirit inspired Paul here to communicate some reasons why, some new motives that will replace the sinful or selfish motives that we may live by. Some, Some new reasons why our behavior matters so much. And so that we may wholeheartedly embrace the behaviors that Paul commands the church in this letter. So why must we know how to behave as Christ's church? Why? Three things that Paul has given to us in this text. We looked at the first one last week, 
and part of the second one will pick up with the second one and then Lord willing look at the third one today so there's three authoritative urgency holy identity and great Christology those are the three reasons that we come to this text and say wow my behavior does matter it does matter what I say and what I do in the gathered church and how we function together it matters because there's an authoritative urgency that comes with this text. There's a holy identity that we have. And there's a great Christology that we hold. Let's dive right into where we dropped off last week with our holy identity. You can look in verse 15 where Paul describes the church with four titles. And they, they are first of all the household of God. We must know how to behave as the household of God because we're God's family. Secondly, last week we looked at the fact that we are the church of the living God. We are indwelled. We are the assembly of the only true and living God. We looked at that in some detail. Well, this week let's look at those third and fourth titles that Paul gives to the church. A pillar and buttress of the truth. And really those two titles are written together as a pair, and we're going to take them together, but I want you to see the distinction between those two as well. We as the church, letter C in your outline, we are the pillar and the buttress of the truth. Paul refers to two architectural structures in order to illustrate the relationship of the church to the truth. This is a vital piece of scripture to understand for us as we consider our identity and our purpose in the world. With reference to our identity, the first two titles, the household of God and the church of the living God, tell us more about who we are. Who we are. And these second two titles, pillar and buttress, tell us more about our purpose in the world, what we are to do. This is, this is what the church does. This is our role. If you ever wonder, what is the church supposed to be doing? What is the reason that there is a local church here in Escanaba? What is our purpose? It's because of the calling of Christ upon our lives to be the pillar and the buttress of the truth. The first word there, pillar. Paul is talking about what we would typically think of as a pillar, a very large column in a building, maybe a museum that you would go to and you see very large pillars. I remember as a, as a kid going downtown Chicago and visiting the Museum of Science and Industry, and they have massive pillars, I remember, at that museum. It's a column, it's a prop, it's a support. The architectural purpose of a pillar is not only to hold something stable, but really to hold something up high so that it can be seen even from far away. To hold something stable, but really to hold something high. The second word that Paul uses here is buttress. Paul is talking about the mainstay of the building. Even its foundation, this word in the New Testament is used for foundation or a bulwark, the part of the structure that supports and stabilizes and holds something firm. 
Now, I'm not sure what image comes to your mind when you hear those words and you hear me define those words, pillar and buttress, but it's very likely that a very familiar structure uh, and a specific structure uh, came into the minds of each reader of Paul in the letter of Ephesians, or in this letter of 1 Timothy as he wrote to the Ephesians. They would have thought about the great temple of Diana, or the male name is Artemis. The Ephesian temple of Diana is one of the ancient wonders of the world. A massive structure to worship the false god Diana. The temple of Diana boasted massive foundations, which held firm 127 pillars, each of them over 54 feet high. And each of those pillars was inlaid with jewels and overlaid with gold. Those 127 towering pillars held up its massive marble roof, which would shine brilliantly as it reflected the light of the sun. The Ephesian readers would understand very well the word pictures that Paul was painting by calling the church the pillar and the buttress of the truth. Do we understand what Paul is communicating here? If the temple of Diana was filled with pillars and boasted a marble roof that reflected the sun and and, and was held firm by massive foundations, and that was structured for the worship of Diana, Paul is now saying, you are the structure for the worship of of the living God. You are the pillar and the buttress of truth. What is the relationship then between the church and the truth? The church is the God-ordained entity whose role in the world is to hold firm and to hold high the truth. That's what we do. That is why we are here. That is the activity and purpose that infuses and envelops literally everything we do. It ought to. We hold firm and hold high the truth. We must not be distracted from our purpose. Beloved church, each one of you who are truly part of this local church by regeneration, are a God-ordained part of that unique purpose. And you, as believers, are called by God to live accordingly. Do you see yourself as a vital part in the sovereign grace of God in this church as the pillar and a buttress of the truth? Do you see that as your calling, your identity, your purpose in this world as a member of Christ's church? As the truth's buttress, we are responsible and enabled by God to hold the truth firm. Well, what does that mean? The truth is the foundation of the church. But the church is also the foundation of the truth. Most most commonly, we're used to thinking about the truth being the foundation of the church, and that's true. That is true. That's what the scripture says. Ephesians chapter 2 talks about that. 
But in this text, Paul says, the church is also the foundation of the truth. Meaning, we are called, we are equipped, we are commissioned to protect the truth from error. To keep it pure, to defend it from every perverting changes. We hold the truth firm in the midst of any hurricane of heresy. That's what we're called to do. We're we're to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints when the church and the truth are under attack, when the world wants to, to crush it and to eliminate it and to set it aside. This is our calling. This is our identity. This is our purpose. And this has been the role of the church throughout history since the day of Pentecost. And this is our role, Calvary Baptist Church. This is our role at this time in this community. We're to hold firm the truth so that it will remain pure and unchanged just the way we have received it from Christ and his apostles. This responsibility has been laid upon each one of us as members of this local body and all of us together. No, this isn't something that we can do in our own strength and with the, the, the puny powers of, of our human mind and, and, and mouths. But this is why Christ is ascended as Lord and has sent the Holy Spirit to live in us so that we may, by His grace, by His power, be enabled to buttress the truth, to hold it firm. This day and age brings great and many attacks against the truth. And we are called by God to hold it firm. Very close to the role of being a buttress of the truth is the role of being a pillar of the truth. As the truth's pillar, we are to hold high the truth so that the people of our community may have the light of the gospel reflected toward them from our lives and from our words. Maybe the Ephesian people would imagine the sun reflecting off of the the marble roof of the temple of Diana. We are the temple of the living God, a true God that truly exists. and, And from our lives, we are called to reflect and to hold high the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're to proclaim the truth clearly accurately, boldly, by the grace of God, so that through the message of truth, many may be brought out of darkness into light. That's our calling. That's our identity. God has ordained that we, his church in Escanaba, be the pillar by which the truth is held high to the world. It is a main priority in our lives to know the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ clearly, accurately, fully, and to be able to communicate it to others in a way that brings glory to God and represents the person and work of Jesus Christ accurately. That's our goal. That's our responsibility. That's what the Holy Spirit enables us to do. We do that before our children, before our families, before our friends, our co-workers, our neighbors. This is why we exist. Does your life fit? Does your behavior fit with the identity that Paul says has been placed upon us by the Lord Jesus Christ? 
What an amazing calling and privilege. Do you see how much our behavior matters then? Every song we sing matters. The content of every song we sing must hold firm and hold high the truth. Every sermon we preach, every class that happens on Wednesday nights and throughout the week, every Lord's Supper, every growth group, every Bible study, every online ministry, every book recommendation, every uh, ministry that we partake, every attempt to influence our friends and neighbors by social media, every moment of living, it all matters. It all matters so much. Because we are the pillar and the buttress of the truth. If we cease being the pillar and the buttress of the truth, we cease living in the calling to which we have been called. Our living and our speaking are to hold firm and hold high the truth. This is why we must give much emphasis and much time to the Word of God. This is why it is so important that we spend much time hearing and memorizing, and meditating, and studying, and defending, and proclaiming the Word of God. This is what this church must be all about. And we must not be distracted from this purpose. So many churches have chosen to be fueled and consumed by other purposes, earthly purposes. May that not happen to us by the grace of God. May we be all about being the pillar and the buttress of the truth. We've been been called out of the world into Christ to be the household of God, the church of the living God, and the pillar and buttress of the truth. And therefore, we must know how to behave as God's church. So the Apostle Paul has presented to us, as we talked about last week, an authoritative urgency and now we've, we've talked about our holy identity as the household of God, the church of the living God, and the pillar and buttress of the truth. Now, finally this morning, what is the truth? What is the truth for which we are the pillar and buttress? What is the center of the message of truth that we proclaim? Is it Christ? Yes, It's Christ himself, his person and work. And because our message is Christ, our behavior must beautifully adorn that message. That's the point. And another important part of this that we must must be careful with in this day and age is there are so many churches that are associated with another agenda. Something that isn't gospel. Something that isn't Christ-centered. By the grace of God, may we be known as a church that is Christ-centered. That our message that we hold up and hold high isn't something that distracts from the gospel or takes away from the gospel, but that it is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's the message that we communicate by our mouths and, and by our behaviors. Why must we know how to behave? Why must this be our message? Number three, the final reason, we have a great Christology. It's the truth. It's our message. It's Christ. Look at verse 16 again. Great indeed, we confess, 
is the mystery of godliness. He was manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This, this is our message right here in a creedal form. This is what we're all about. More than any other reason, Christ himself, his person and his work is the reason why we must behave with godliness as the household of God. It is the truth of Christ that we're to hold firm and hold high in the world. And Paul summarizes the truth of Christ for us in this section by citing for us, written right here by the divine inspiration, a portion of a creed or a hymn that was well known to the church of the first century. I can imagine believers of the first century gathered together in in houses, in, in small church home groups, and knowing that the next day persecution would come and and they would sit there huddled together, maybe even in a a very very, uh, dimly lit room and whispering this creed together. Maybe this creed was said down in the catacombs of Rome and they would remind each other, this is the message for which we're dying and we will be martyred tomorrow. This is the message that shapes why we don't retaliate in the marketplace when we are wrong. This is the message that shapes all of our words and actions for the glory of God. This is who we are. And you know what? This is our creed too. Verse 16, this is our creed, beloved. This is our hymn of faith and triumph. This confession makes us who we are today as Christ's church. The the Apostle Paul began this section with an emphatic affirmation of, of this creed, that it is absolutely true and it is absolutely important. Look what he says. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. That's the introduction to the creed. Great, highly esteemed, something of very high importance, of great weight, of excellence, something that is splendid, something that is sublime, something that is momentous. This is a great creed of truth. And Paul says, we confess. That's one word. Indeed, we confess. In other words, what he means is, this is confessedly true. We all confess this as the New Testament church. It is absolutely certain. It is above question. It is above denial. It is beyond controversy. By the consent of all, here is the truth that we pillar and buttress. This is our creed. And he also calls it here the mystery of godliness. Remember what mystery means in the New Testament, particularly in Pauline writing? It's those truths that were veiled in the past, that were veiled and, and were beginning to sort of uh, be, be made clear throughout the Old Testament. But finally now, in the New Testament scriptures, in the New Testament church era, this is clear, perfectly clear. And this creed gives to us something great. This creed gives to us something that is absolutely certain. This this creed unveils for us mysteries that were once once were hidden in the new in the Old Testament and are now clear. But it's the mystery of godliness, Paul says. 
This word godliness speaks about the sum and substance of our devotion to God. What our religion, in, in, in every good sense of that word, what our religion is all about. That which creates and defines and stimulates our worship and reverence toward God. That which is truly holy and true piety. What is it? It's Christ. It's Christ. Do you notice how it says, Great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. He, He is the mystery of godliness. The mystery of godliness can truly be summed up in one word, Christ. Our creed is not primarily statements of truth. It is primarily a person. The person and work of Jesus Christ. It is statements of truth. But it is statements of truth about a person. Jesus Christ is the truth once veiled, but now made perfectly clear by the revelation of God. Jesus Christ is the true one who is holy and, and he is the true picture of godliness. He is the sum and substance of our devotion to God. He is the one who has created and defined and stimulates our worship of God. Christ is. We worship him. He is God in human flesh. To see him is to see perfect godliness. To see Christ is to know perfect holiness. And through his person and work, we're made holy. We're given grace to grow in godliness. We're given the way to be brought before the throne of God. To worship God truly. Christ is the sum and substance of all godliness. He's the source of all godliness. He's our, he is our Savior. If you want to sum up the gospel in one word, what would you say? Christ. Christ is the gospel. His sinless life. His substitutionary death. His powerful resurrection. His ascension, intercession, and reign. And his imminent return. That's the gospel. It's the person and work of Jesus Christ. When you proclaim the gospel to others... Don't get distracted by all of the religious trends and traditions and the endless questions and skepticisms. Just point people to Christ, His person and work. Do you know the gospel well enough, clearly enough, to give people Christ? To communicate Him to your children, your grandchildren, your spouse, your friends, your neighbors. Can you give people Christ clearly? That's your calling. That's your identity. Paul may have begun this confession with great, indeed, we confess because of the common confession in Ephesus. In Acts 19.28, we have a little historical piece there that we understand that in Ephesus there was a creed that was recited by all the worshipers of Diana or Artemis. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. You can look it up, Acts 19.28. If that's what Paul is, is doing, is comparing with that, he, he's really declaring You'd want to know what is truly great? It's not Artemis of the Ephesians. It's Christ. I'll show you someone who is great. Christ is great. He is the creed. He is the truth. He is our confession. Paul gives us six glorious statements of Christology which summarize the person and work of Jesus Christ and the creed of the church and the truth that we hold firm and hold high. First of all, you can see the first phrase there. He was manifest in the flesh. 
That's the first phrase. It confesses the humanity and the divinity of the Son of God, the second person, the Trinity, manifest in the flesh. What is that talking about? What part of the gospel is that talking about? Well, it refers explicitly to the incarnation of Jesus Christ. He took on flesh. He was made man. He became Jesus, the Christ. The Son of God was made manifest to the world through his incarnation. That's the truth of John 1.14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And God the Father revealed or made himself known to us through the humanity of the Son. But this manifestation also implies his divinity. Because he did not begin to exist at his manifestation. In other words, his incarnation didn't bring him into existence or create him, but simply made him visible. That means he pre-existed his human birth. Right? The eternal Son of God pre-existed his human birth. Of course he did. He was before his Father made him known. He was simply manifested, made known, revealed to the world through his incarnation. In truth, he is the eternal, self-existent, self-sustaining God revealed in human flesh. That's why John 1, 1-4 and verse 18 say, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's Christ, Jesus, the eternal Son. He was the Word. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. No one ever has seen God, verse 18 says. The only God who is at the Father's side, that's the eternal Son. He has made Him known. Jesus has made God known. He has revealed God. And so we confess the manifestation of Christ. Jesus Christ is the eternal God-made man. This is the center of our message. If you don't believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, eternal God, who took on human nature to become visible, you're not a Christian. If this truth is not a part of your message because you believe that Jesus is mere man or something lesser than God, then you are not communicating the saving gospel of Jesus Christ, and you are not a believer. We confess with the entire true church, just like Paul says, the manifestation of Christ. We are to pillar and buttress that truth by our lives and words. The second phrase that Paul talks about there, vindicated by the Spirit, vindicated by the Spirit, letter B, we'll call it the vindication of Christ. This phrase confesses the work that the Holy Spirit did through Jesus Christ to prove that every claim that he made about himself was absolutely true. Jesus clearly claimed to be the eternal Son, to be God in human flesh. He claimed it. A sinless Savior, powerful Messiah, judge of all the earth, king of the kingdom of God, and more. The four Gospels gives us clear record of Christ's declarations that he said, this is who I am. And the Holy Spirit of God, working through the man Christ Jesus, vindicated or proved those claims to be true. 
by enabling at least six unprecedented acts in the life of Jesus Christ. How did the Spirit of God vindicate the, the claims of Jesus Christ about himself through the virgin birth? The virgin birth, Luke 1.35, that demonstrates, that vindicates that Jesus is the God-man, the Savior. The Spirit of God enabled Christ's authoritative ministry, Matthew 3.16, Luke 3.22, John 3.31-36. That text in John says Jesus Christ has the Spirit of God without measure. His righteous life was enabled by the Spirit of God. Matthew 4.1, Mark 1.12, as Jesus was led out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan, the Spirit led him out there and sustained him and proved that he is sinless and perfectly righteous. That's what we call the impeccability of Christ. It is impossible for him to sin. The Spirit of God enabled Christ for the virgin birth the authoritative ministry, his righteous life, his miraculous life. Matthew 12, 28 and Acts 10, 38 both show that the Spirit of God empowered Christ for those miracles. Substitutionary death, Hebrews 9, 14, Jesus Christ offered himself up by the Spirit. And resurrected life, Romans 1, 4 and Romans 8.11, both attribute the resurrection of Christ to the Holy Spirit's power. And of course, the Spirit of God raising Christ from the dead also affirms that Christ's life was a sinless life. He rose because he had no sin for his own to pay for. He died for our sin and was risen again. And these works of the Holy Spirit powerfully demonstrate that Jesus was one person with two natures, a human nature, a divine nature, because it was through the human nature of Jesus that the Holy Spirit was working. And that unique working of the Holy Spirit proved that Jesus was also the divine Son of God. Everything that the living word and the written word claims for the person and, uh, of Jesus Christ is absolutely true and has been undeniably vindicated by the Holy Spirit. So we confess this vindication of Christ. We confess that he is virgin born, sinless, full of divine power and authority, the atoning Lamb of God and the resurrected Lord. That's the center of our message. This is the secret of Jesus now revealed in the New Testament. Do you confess this truth? It is the pure gospel. Let us pillar and buttress this truth by our lives and words. Let us hold firm and hold high the vindicated Christ. Thirdly, Paul says, the annunciation of Christ. Look what he says there. Seen by angels. The annunciation of Christ. This phrase confesses uh, the cosmic significance of Christ's work. It shows its massive impact on the affairs of earth and of heaven, of men, and of angels. The phrase announces the victory of Christ and his perfect success in accomplishing the redemptive plans of God. Well, we say, what do you mean? How do you get all that out of seen by angels? Well, the angels had a role to play in the life of Jesus. What did they do? Well, they announced Christ. 
Angels knew of and announced the birth of Christ to Mary, to Joseph, to the shepherds. Angels observed and announced the resurrection of Christ. They were the first beings to communicate to humans that the resurrection of Christ had just taken place. In fact, all of the New Testament occurrence of this verb, seen, seen by angels, they're all used in connection with Jesus and referring all the all the usages that are in connection with Jesus are used to refer to his resurrection appearances. Luke 20, 24, 31, Acts 13, 31, Acts 26, 16, 1 Corinthians 15, 5, 6, 7, and 8. He was seen by angels. Angels observed and announced the ascension of Christ and promised his return. See, that's no small matter here that he was seen by angels. God commissioned angelic messengers from heaven to penetrate the life of men on earth to observe and announce the true identity and work of Jesus Christ. He was born. He was raised. He ascended. He's Lord of all. He's returning. These are things into which angels long to look. And we confess the same truth of Christ. Yes, he was born of a virgin. He was raised in power. He is ascended and seated as Lord of all. And he is coming back soon, just like the angels announced. Let us pillar and buttress these truths. Letter D, the proclamation of Christ. The annunciation of Christ by angels was then echoed by man in the proclamation of Christ, letter D, you can see it there in your in your verse and in your notes, proclaimed among the nations. The angels handed off the baton, as it were, of proclamation to the apostles, and the apostles handed off the baton to their disciples, and, and those disciples continued to hand off the baton of proclamation until now we hold this baton, the baton of proclaiming to the nations. This phrase confesses the immediate missional progress and success of the person and work of Jesus Christ in the world. The message of the person and work of Jesus Christ, beloved, exploded like shockwaves of a bomb throughout the known world. From Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and the uttermost part of the world, Acts 1.18. The first message that Peter preached on the day of Pentecost took 3,000 souls into its gospel grip, and New Testament church began. It then expanded throughout all the known world as the pages of Acts turn. Jesus Christ is the God-man. He is the virgin-born, authoritative, powerful, sinless, atoning, resurrected, ascended, returning Messiah, Savior, King, and... The world is commanded to repent and believe the good news of Jesus Christ. This was the message that was preached and heralded throughout the nations. This, this word that Paul uses here for proclaimed, that's that famous word which pictures the herald of a king riding into the town square on a, on a horse blowing his trumpet commanding everyone to hear the message from the king. 
This, this message is from the King of Kings and Lord of Lords about the person and work of Jesus Christ. And the command of the gospel is to turn away from sin, to turn away from self-righteousness, to trust in Jesus Christ, His person and work for forgiveness of sins and salvation from God's wrath and to be given the gift of eternal life. And that message is roaring through time and all the nations in the world. It is. Sometimes we think, sadly, errantly, that the mission of Christ is hobbling along or is failing in some way. Beloved, it is not. The mission of Jesus Christ is successful. Everyone whom the Father has given to the Son will come to Him. And so the gospel has gone out of the nations and continues to go out into the nations and in all the world and call men, women, boys and girls to salvation in Jesus Christ. And Christ has been proclaimed among the nations like this and with success for thousands of years because His person and work are absolutely true. Because He is victorious because he has risen, ascended, and sent his spirit to live in the hearts of his people so that they are empowered to proclaim his message wherever they go. Beloved, the message of Christ is not benign. It is living. It's active because it is a message that is sent from the ascended and reigning Christ through the ministry of the Holy Spirit who indwells every believer and empowers them to proclaim Christ and him crucified. Let's pillar and buttress this truth together by the grace of God. Letter E, the reception of Christ. What has been the response of that heralded message? Believed on in the world. It's the fifth phrase there in the creed. Believed on in the world. This has been the response of millions and millions of sinners all throughout the world. In fact, many sinners are responding in repentance and faith toward Christ even today. Even under great persecution. Why? Because Jesus Christ is who he said he is. And because he has ascended as Lord of Lord and commands the reception of his message, of his person and work into the hearts of all who he has chosen to grant eternal life. You see, listen, Jesus Christ is not a broken beggar who is pleading for proud sinners to please accept him someday when they're good and ready so that his work will not be wasted and his mission not fail. That's not Jesus of this creed. That's not Jesus of the Bible. There's a song that comes on the radio every now and then and I can't stand it. It makes my spine crawl. It's called, He Was There All the Time. And it talks about Christ as if he's waiting in line after many of my other poor choices of, of lords and masters waiting for me. He's just waiting there, patiently standing in line until I get around to accepting him. That's not our Christ at all. That is not Jesus Christ. Jesus the Christ is a king who commands the allegiance of sinners as they bow the knee before him in repentance and faith. And one day every knee will bow. Yes, God is patient and long-suffering. But when he decides for a sinner to come and repent, he will summon them with an irresistible call of sovereign grace and they enjoy 
and sorrow for their sin, joy and receiving Christ will come to him and bow the knee in repentance and faith. Let us pillar and buttress this truth, the reception of Christ. Finally, the exaltation of Christ taken up in glory. Taken up in glory, the very last phrase. This phrase confesses the complete and full, joyful, victorious acceptance of Christ into the glory of his Father, into the majesty of heaven, as he was inaugurated and crowned and seated and enthroned as the sovereign Savior, as the conquering King, as the Lord of Lords. And this exaltation to the place of Lord, seated at the right hand of God, anticipates the day when he will return in glory to reward those who have loved him by his grace and trusted in him for salvation and to judge those who have refused him and loved their sin. This is our Christ, the ascended, exalted, coming Christ. That's our message, beloved. This is the truth that we're to pillar and buttress, to hold firm and to, to hold high by our lives and words. In closing this morning, again, I ask you, do you see why our behavior matters so much? Can, can you connect the dots in your mind? This is why we must know how to behave as Christ's church. Because this Christ, this Christ that Paul confesses at the center of our message and our mission is the one for whose glory we live and speak. We are to proclaim this Christ by the accuracy of our message and the holiness of our lives. We're the family of Christ. We bear his name. He is our brother. We are the church of Christ who is the living God. We are the pillar to hold high the tr truth of Christ. That's, he is the truth we hold high. And we are the buttress to hold firm the truth of Christ. He is the, he is the truth that we defend and, and fight for, according to Jude, verse 3. And this Christ is our Messiah, Savior, King. See, his righteousness is declared to be ours if you're trusting in him by his grace. His death was for us to absorb the wrath of God that we deserve for our sin. His resurrection was for us. His spirit lives in us. His prayers are constant for us. His gospel came to us. His truth is being received by us. His coming will complete us. Do our lives look like it? Do our words sound like this is our message, that this is our life, and that our mission is to pillar and buttress that truth. Are we behaving as his pillars and buttresses? Does our behavior fit with the great Christology that we confess? Does our way of life reflect the saving and power and, and authority of Jesus Christ? Is the truth and the, the authority and the power and the success and the certainty of the redemptive plan of Christ reflected in your pursuit of knowing him? Or is he really not that important to you? Wow. If he's not important to you, look at this text and be in awe 
of the majesty of Christ and pursue him with your whole heart? Is your communication of the gospel to your spouse, to your children, to your family, does it reflect the greatness of our Christology and the holiness of our identity? Does your defense of the truth reflect your great Christology, your fellowship with one another? Does it reflect your holy identity and your great Christology, your your work in the world, your light handling of earthly things, your pursuit of godly character, your life in prayer to the Father in the name of this great Jesus, the Christ? If Christ is who this creed says he is, and if his mission is unfolding as it as this creed says it is, with such power and success, and if, and if we are the church that this text describes, then that means we are the family, we're the church, we're the pillar, we're the buttress, then everything about this text and its creed ought to be powerfully transforming everything about our lives as Christ's church. We ought to be thinking carefully and prayerfully, asking ourselves, does does this activity that I'm engaged in fit with our mission and our message in this world? Do these words that I'm saying, do they fit? Does this watching or listening or reading choice fit with my message and my mission that, that God has given to me here in this text? Does this financial choice fit? Does this relationship choice fit? Does this attitude fit? You can can pour everything in your life, every part of your behaviors, through the grid of your holy identity and your great Christology. Is it fitting? Does it reflect it? Does it pillar? Does it buttress the truth? Again, this is why we must know how to behave as God's church. May it be so by the power of the ascended Christ at work in us and through us. Beloved, let us not trust in ourselves to become who God has called us to be. Let us reach for it with everything that's in us, but know that everything that's in us is provided by the grace of the interceding reigning Christ. Dear friend, if you're here today and and, and you're not a child of God through faith in Christ alone, then let me tell you something. You're not a part of the household of God. You're not a part of the church of the living God. If, if you are have not placed your faith in Jesus Christ and repent, had begun repenting from sin and trusting in Jesus to wash that sin away and remove your guilt and take your punishment for you so that you can have a relationship in eternal life with God, if you have not trusted in Christ, if that's not your life, then then you are not part of the church of Jesus Christ, the living God. You're not a pillar. You're not part of the pillar and buttress of the truth. You may have attended services for years. That doesn't make you the church of the living God or the household of God. You may have prayed a prayer and, and been baptized. Those actions don't make you part of the household of God. You may live with an outward show of being religious and charitable and moral, that doesn't make you part of God's household. You may think that you are, 
but there is only one way that you can become part of the household of God. It is by the saving person and work of Jesus Christ, the very creed that we talked about this morning. That's the Christian creed. That is the gospel. Ephesians 2 1 through 10 tells you the gospel. It tells you, tells all of us that we're born of the world sinful. We love sin. We live by the desires of our body and our mind. And in that text, God says we're dead to God. We're, we're dead in trespasses and sins. That's who we are. We love our sin. We've offended God by our sin. We are called there children of wrath. We deserve God's eternal wrath because of our sin. But God is also rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us raises us up with Christ. You see, he makes everything that Christ's that is Christ's become ours because he gives all that is ours to Christ. He takes Christ's sinless life, his life of obedience, and his, his substitutionary death, and he, and he makes it for us so that we are righteous. When we trust in Jesus Christ, his righteousness becomes ours. His death is for us. And then Christ became our sin and was judged by God and felt his wrath for our sin. That's the only way that a sinner can be declared a saint. It's through the saving work of Jesus Christ. And his resurrection will bring you to spiritual life and someday soon to real, physical, eternal, immortal life. And you can't do that for yourself. Turn from your sin. Turn from your self-righteousness. Christ has done everything you need to be made right with God and to have eternal life. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. Through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. And then, Paul writes, after that, he makes us his workmanship. Then we can become part of the pillar and buttress of the truth to proclaim the gospel with our lips and with our lives for his glory. I pray, I pray that, if, that if you're not saved today, that you would hear this great Christology and bow the knee to Christ and trust in him for salvation. Would you join me in prayer this morning? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this very central and powerful text that you have given to us in the letter of 1 Timothy. I pray, Lord, that you would take these words, these authoritative, inspired words written thousands of years ago by the pen of Paul, but inspired by the Spirit, and drive them into our hearts. Let it change our motives. Let it change our thinking and change our behavior so that we may behave the way you have called us to as your pillar and buttress. And again, I pray this morning, Father, that you would help us to see how important our behavior is, the behaviors that Paul talks about in this text, and that you would enable us by your grace to live fitting with our holy identity and our great Christology. Father, if there is someone listening this morning that does not know you, that has trusted themselves and, and loves their sin, however secret they feel their sin may be, Father, may they be drawn, may they be summoned to Christ and see him for all that he is in his glorious grace 
and beauty and majesty as Savior. We pray in his holy name. Amen.